Well, Father, thank you for this group that has gathered on this uh, storm-threatening morning and even with the anticipation of uh, some sloppy weather. Thank you for the opportunity to encourage one another to sing together the hymns of Christmas, to remind ourselves of our rightful priorities and our focus on Christ. Thank you for your word and how it speaks to us and how it encourages us and keeps us in balance. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to the hearing of the word, to the doing of the word. And I pray that your good hand would be upon our congregation this morning and through this gathering, through this Sunday morning service. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. One of our very most favorite vacations as a as a young family, younger family, before Jonathan was on the scene, was uh, a trip to the state of Maine. And it was with great anticipation that we headed up the coast of Maine and enjoyed a cabin on the bay there and uh, near the water. And Tasha was maybe, our daughter Tasha was maybe in fourth or fifth grade. One of the things that Janet and I enjoyed immensely was uh, just meandering up Maine off the beaten path along the coastal highway there. And as we came through smaller communities, we often uh, took time to stop and visit antique shops. It didn't take very long that this became an incredibly horrible ordeal to Tasha. She absolutely hated what we absolutely enjoyed she could see no reason whatsoever to use good, usable vacation hours in an antique store looking at junk that was from so long ago. Well, I invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and I have to admit to you that I'm worried that you're going to be Tasha today. Why would we stop here and visit this antique shop Um, Why do we care about what happened so long ago and this list of the names of people? We're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We are beginning a journey. It is, um, do you know what it is to be on a fishing dock and to get in the boat and you have one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock? That's all the farther we got on our journey in Matthew last week. This week we step in the boat and we're going to start pushing off from the dock as we head down the river Matthew and uh, just let Matthew's gospel impact our congregation for the months ahead. It's a meaningful time as Matthew, of course, is laying a groundwork for the coming of Messiah and he will uh, reference uh, some aspects of this Christmas story that we will deal with over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, somewhere here in December, probably the last Sunday of December, we anticipate Matt and Amy White and their family being with us. Some of you will be interested in this, and we will uh, share the pulpit that Sunday and let Matt bring God's word. I think that will be the last Sunday of this year, the 29th. So we should be able to get through much of Matthew's Christmas story um, in the next two Sundays after this. Well, we're in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1. It is uh, old history. It's the antique store part of Matthew. And um, one of the questions that you might have is, as I reference like Tasha, why should we care about this old stuff? Who cares? Well, actually, for the format of our message today, I want to actually ask six questions and try to answer them. To do that and to organize our thoughts, I'm going to give you six key words 
They all start with the letter C, as in cat. And um, if you're taking notes, that will help you a little bit. Following each key word will be the question that we want to answer. I fully recognize that the genealogy is the part that most of us, when we begin our Bible reading anew and afresh, we let our eyes skim over it and we don't live by the letter of the law when we check off on our Bible reading list that we have read Matthew chapter 1 and we kind of run through it. We are going to read this account today. We are going to read the genealogy. This is one of five or six genealogies that are in God's Word, the first being in Genesis chapter 5 and then there's some in the historical books of the Old Testament. And then Luke chapter 3 has a genealogical record as well. And we are actually going to look at Luke's genealogy a little bit. We won't read it, but there are some questions that come up in the Christmas account and in this account of the prophecy and the identifying of the Messiah through the genealogical record. So you need to stay with me. For those of you who don't like antiques, it might get a little bit tedious. Others of you, it will be delightful. And you will enjoy uh, understanding some of the nuance as to why Matthew, who writes this account, would take the time to do it in such fashion. Let's read it. Let's also remember as we read it that when we open God's Word, that this is the perfect Word of God. You would say sometimes, I wish that God would make His Word clearer. Or you might say, I wish God would have said this or would have said that. Or why did God include the genealogical record? Well, who cares? Listen, it was all written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So even though Matthew's mind and his interests and his personality will be seen through the writing, it is the Holy Spirit who is guiding the hand. All Scripture is given by God and is inspired by His Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit guided Matthew to write just as He wanted and to record for us just the word that He wanted. So let's also read this with the attitude that God wants us to know about this. He recorded it. And this is as inspired as John 3.16. We don't think of it that way, but that's the truth. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And may God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. In our commitment to to exposit or to be committed to a a thorough um, preaching of the word from the scripture as it is given to us. We did not want to skip this passage. And so let's dig in. Six key words. They all start with six. And let's understand the mind of Matthew and let's understand how important, really, this genealogical record is. And I trust that even at the end we'll have some life application that will encourage your hearts. The first C word that we have is the word credentials. Credentials. The question is, why does this list matter? Why does this list matter? Well, here's where we need to go back to the historical context. To whom did Matthew write his gospel? Remember what we said last week? Matthew wrote to the Jews, right? Now, you need to understand that in the Jewish mind, genealogies were not boring To his original audience, genealogical records were very important. And so one of the things we have to understand right away is that we are reading the Gospel of Matthew with a very Gentile and Western mind. And this was originally written to Jewish people who lived in Israel a couple of thousand years ago in a totally different historical context. And to them, who their forefathers were was was vitally important. I have noticed that genealogical research has become very popular. There are some faiths not near, not represented in, in uh, congregations. Uh, they're called stakes, what they call their congregations nearby. And one of the, in the Mormon faith, for example, that they do genealogical research to an incredible extent. For what reason? The Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints does genealogical records so that they can be baptized in proxy for the dead, relatives or not, so that it creates the possibility for them to go to heaven. I want to make clear that the genealogical record of Scripture is not here for that purpose in any way, shape, or form, and that that is not a biblical teaching. The only account that we have of being baptized for the dead is in 1 Corinthians, and Paul uh, actually chastises them for for baptizing and doing it. It It wasn't something he was teaching, it was something they were doing, but they didn't understand why they were doing it, or they understood why, but it wasn't... It wasn't a biblical practice. It wasn't taught by the apostles. You cannot get baptized for someone who's lived before you and who's in a cemetery somewhere and open up the doors of heaven and outpour grace upon them to remove their sin. Sinners must deal with God while they're alive during their lifetime. Hebrews says it is appointed unto man once to die, and then after that, the judgment. And there's no second chances. Do you remember the rich man and Lazarus? We visit that story fairly regularly. And that great gulf that is fixed between. And how he begged for the poor man to put a drop of water on his lips. 
And Father Abraham told him, no, my son, it's too late. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. No one can be baptized for you someday. Nobody will be able to light candles and say prayers and get you into heaven. And so one of the things you need to understand is to not misunderstand the purpose of the genealogy. And it is not for any kind of religious, ritualistic recording so that we might be baptized for them. Let's make sure we understand that in case that had come to your mind. So in the Jewish mind, why was the genealogical record so important? I'm not going to bog down on this, but I can just mention a few things, and you can understand that. And some of you who are interested, um, I have some commentaries, and if you're really interested in this kind of thing, you can take the time to read in the commentaries. And in fact, I'm going to read to you from a commentary of Matthew, and that will give you an idea of why you can just take the book and read it later on on your own. Um, In the Jewish mind, first of all, you need to know that the very dividing of the promised land was based upon who your, who your tribe was, who was your father, who were your people. Do you remember when Joshua divided up the land? It was divided according to the 12 tribes of Israel. It was divided according to the tri- 12 tribes of Israel. And so uh, when they divided up the land, it depended on who your father was, okay, of the 12 sons of Jacob. And so that's one reason. Who am I? And where, does, where is my part of the land? Am I a son of Joseph through Benjamin? Then that matters where I'm at. Am I a son of Levi? That matters where I get to settle. And so that was important in their history as they understood their history. And many of you know what it is to want to know more about your forefathers. Where did they live? Where, from where did they come? And, and what was their record? And that's, that was very important to the Jewish mind. The very dividing of the land and what their home turf was. Secondly, you need to know that uh, the pre priestly line. The priestly line ran through uh, Aaron and Levi, and you were not allowed to be a priest if you were, not, you were not from that line. So if your forefathers were not Aaron and Levi, you could not be a priest. We're not going to take time to turn there, but if you would look in Ezra, if you're taking notes, you can look up Ezra chapter 2, verses 61 and 62, and you will see there that in Ezra, as they were dividing up the land, that uh, as they were, as they were coming back from the dispersion, that they were wanting to reinstitute temple worship, and as a result of that, they needed to identify who were the priests. And so they needed to know their genealogy so that they could reestablish the priest. You see, in 70 A.D., in 70 A.D., Rome came in and bashed down the temple and they destroyed all the records. And so a lot of this was based upon oral record and family history. And in Ezra chapter 2, you'll see an account there where they could not identify who they were. They thought they were of the priesthood line, but they were disqualified because they could not document their genealogical record. That's interesting, isn't it? It is likely that this genealogical record was a public posting at the temple of the day and that this was widely known. Another reason that this genealogical record was important is that Matthew knew that everybody in Israel understood this genealogical record and he is now... And thirdly, and most importantly, proving that Jesus of Nazareth qualifies to be the Messiah because it was required, you'll recall, and again, we'll not take time to look there, but in Genesis chapter 15, you can write that down and look it up, in Genesis chapter 15, we have what? We have what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. We have the Abrahamic Covenant. And through that covenant, God promised... That through his offspring, which would end up being as many as the stars in the sky and the sand grains on the seashore, that out of him, though, would come one who would bless all nations. 
It was a prophetic, a prophetic pronouncement that through Abraham's offspring, Messiah would one day come. All of the Israelites and the Jewish people understood that. Not only that, in 2 Samuel and chapter 7, 2 Samuel and chapter 7, there we have what is known as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. It is a covenant like the Abrahamic covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. God also made a promise or a covenant with King David. And he said, from your throne, out of you, from your throne, will come one who will rule and reign forever and ever. That's the hallelujah chorus, right? Forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's part of the Davidic promise. That's the covenant from David. All right? And so what did you understand if you were an Israelite? If you were in, in Jerusalem and in the surrounding vicinity when Matthew lived and Matthew wrote, you knew you were looking for Messiah who was going to come rescue you from these, these terrible Romans and reestablish your nationhood and, and so forth. And you knew that it would be certainly a descendant of Abraham. And if they're a descendant of David, they have to be a descendant of Abraham, of course. And if they would certainly come through the line of David... Right? And he's the the Lion of Judah through David. And so, that is a big reason why this genealogy record is here. It is to credential the Messiah. It is to credential Jesus as qualifying. See word number one, credentials. Question number one, why does this matter? Why does this list matter? Well, the dividing of land, the priestly line, who your forefathers were, and most important, Matthew is showing everyone that, that, uh, that are Jewish that they cannot disqualify Jesus according to the genealogical record. Second C word, comparison. Comparison. Question. What about Luke's genealogy and the inconsistencies? What about Luke's genealogy and the inconsistencies? Okay, so here's what you need to think about. You need to take your Bible right now and you need to turn to Luke chapter 3. And you need to hold it with your hand or put a card in there. Okay, and you need to just be ready to flip back and forth between the two. I'll try to make this really simple and just show you a couple differences between the genealogies that you might have thought about or you might have people who are skeptics of God's Word point at this and criticize the inconsistencies of God's Word. Skeptics of God's Word always love to point out inconsistencies. One of the word that, one of the ways you should preface the word inconsistencies when you study your Bible is you should use the word seeming inconsistencies. Because almost always there's excellent reasons why God wrote it down the way, well, always there's reasons why God wrote it. Not almost, always. And almost always we can figure that out. That's what we can't always figure out. Why did God write it the way he wrote it? But almost always we can figure it out. Always God wrote it exactly the way he wanted. So, comparison between Luke. If you would take the time to read, in fact, let's let our eyes go to Luke chapter 3, um, verse 23 is where this genealogy begins of the life of Christ. And it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, now notice the parenthetical insert, as was supposed of Joseph, and then it says the son of Heli, or Eli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, and so forth and so on. We'll not read it. If you, if you have your hand, okay, open back to Genesis, to Matthew chapter 1, and notice where, where Matthew starts. 
Okay, so the first thing that we notice in comparison is that Matthew starts with Abraham and moves to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus, and now flip back to Luke chapter 3. Look where he's going to end in verse 38. And the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Isn't that interesting? So one thing we notice about the two, two genealogical records is that they work in opposite directions. So the first, they move generationally in opposite directions. Secondly, you'll notice that Matthew begins with Abraham and runs to Joseph. Luke begins with Joseph and runs all the way back to Adam. And so they don't look quite the same and they don't read quite the same. Now, why is that? Most people, most Bible scholars will agree, number three, they agree that Matthew's genealogy is tracking the record of Joseph. And it ends with Joseph, and it's showing that Joseph, who was Jesus' legal father or biological father? Legal father. Showing that Joseph, Jesus' legal father, is qualified to have the Messiah because, or a right to the throne of David, that he's a son of Abraham who comes through David. And Joseph qualifies. And that is a legal positioning for Jesus to qualify to sit on the throne of David and be the Messiah. The second thing that they agree on there is that Luke's genealogy is most likely Mary's line and lineage. So Matthew is, is likely, and there's a couple questions, but it looks like that's a workable solution and that that is right. That it makes the most sense to understand it to be Matthew presenting Joseph's lineage and Luke is presenting Mary's lineage, who is the physical mother of Jesus or biological mother of Jesus. And through his legal father, he qualifies to be the Messiah. And also through his biological mother, he qualifies to be of the lineage of the house of David and therefore is not disqualified. Do you remember, and we won't take time to look up these verses, there's four or five different passages in the Gospels where Jesus was often criticized. They would criticize his upbringing. Well, who are you? You're just from Nazareth. You're from Galilee. You're an old country bumpkin. But one thing they couldn't criticize is they couldn't criticize his lineage because everybody knew this genealogical record existed and they knew that he qualified whether they liked which side of the tracks he grew up on or not. Another thing that is very interesting, now listen to this. Notice in verse 6 of, um, of Matthew, look at Matthew 1.6. 1 6 says, and these are names that you'll recognize. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Okay, so notice you have Jesse, David's father, David, and then David's son Solomon, and that's the lineage of Joseph through Jesse, David, and Solomon. Now flip to Luke chapter 3. And notice in the verse here, uh, look at verse 31. He's going backwards, remember. So this is, uh, you got to find the son of Jesse in verse 32, and we're going to read backwards now to 31. The son of Jesse, who, verse 31 ends, the son of David, who continues in verse 31, uh, the son of Nathan, who is the son of Mattathah, Mat- 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 See, Solomon's not mentioned. 
This line, Mary's genealogy, comes the biological one, comes through Jesse, David, and a different son, Nathan. Solomon isn't Mary's descendant. Nathan, he's an uncle, but he's not a grandfather. You see that? Now, what difference does that make? This was interesting to me to realize. Do you know what? When the prophets, Isaiah, prophesied that Jesus would be born where? And in Micah and Isaiah, the prophecies of the virgin birth and his location of birth would be where? Clearly, the Old Testament prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. What got them to Bethlehem? What was the, what got a decree, right? A decree came from the king that there was to be a tax, and to make the tax, they wanted to do an accounting, a census, and so everybody had to return to their hometown. So guess what? Joseph and Mary both had to return to the same hometown. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a little nuance there, but I found it interesting that God got Mary and Joseph right where he wanted, right at the right time, and it was actually through their genealogical record. They, they didn't have to go to two different towns. And oops, the baby was born in another town. One of the things you'll realize through this genealogy, and I might say this again, is that God never says oops. God never says oops. He just works out the nuance. You're going to see that in some of the skeletons in the closet in this genealogical record. Well, that's enough of our comparison. Luke shows Mary's lineage from David uh, through Nathan. Uh, Joseph shows, uh, Matthew shows Joseph's lineage through David, through his son Solomon. Credentials, comparison, categories. Categories. C word number three. Back to Matthew. Back to Matthew. Categories. One of the things that is really clear, and let your eyes go to verse 17 where he summarizes it. He says, well, actually, let's look at verse 1 first. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this is the record. This section of Matthew is from a book, which is the record of the genealogy of Okay, of Abraham, David, through to Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ's record. And notice how Matthew divided it up. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Do you get the idea that Matthew divided the genealogy up into three parts and it's 14 generations in each section? Clearly, he states that. If you took the time to go look at Luke's genealogical record, okay, if you look at Luke's genealogical record, you'll find that it's not divided up like that at all and that there's all kinds of names inserted that don't fit the 14 divisions. Okay, let me say something right now. It's pouring snow for about the last 10 minutes. And so if some of you really want to leave and get in your car and go, you can just go. Okay, just slip up and go. I think that's what's happening to a few people. All right? Okay, if not, just hang in there. I think the roads have been salted and stuff. Hopefully, we'll all be good. We could just stay here and keep preaching. <laughs> we'll just pretend we're African, and we'll find some chickens to kill, and, and uh, we'll have some, some soup, and we'll just keep the preaching going all day long. And, uh, and we could probably, probably do that. Um, all right, so we're in categories. So um, we can, we'll go 15 more minutes and we'll conclude on time here. But just so you're aware of that, now relax, okay? Okay? Um, I'm getting a sign up top that says all Sunday events are canceled. Um, we'll clarify that at the end of the service. Let's come back to our message, okay? 
All right? Um, the guys are working things back there and making decisions. So they'll tell me what they want me to know. They probably want me to stop right now, but I'm not going to do that. Okay? <laughs> Categories. I don't want to take very long, but um, why? The question comes up, why did Matthew divide his genealogy into three groups of 14? And why doesn't Luke reflect that? And why doesn't 2 Chronicles reflect that? What, what happens? And we can prove by looking at the historical genealogical records in 2 Chronicles, we can prove that Matthew actually skipped generations to make it work out into three groups of 14. And so one of the things he says, what is that all about? And Bible commentaries spend quite a bit of ink and pages trying to figure it out. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I have no idea. And I don't think anybody has any idea, but I will tell you what I think. I think that Matthew knew exactly why he did it, and I think his original audience understood it. I think it's something Jewish. I think it was something at the time that they evened it out into these three groups of 14, and for some reason that was symbolic. Um, one commentary suggests that David's name in numerology, when you take David's name and turn it into numbers... There's this whole line of thought where numbers in the Bible mean a lot, and they do. If you turn David's name into numbers, it comes out to 14. Let me just take just a second and humor you by reading from uh, one of the New Testament commentaries that I really depend on. It's by uh, William Hendrickson, Hendrickson and Kistemacher, and it's the New Testament commentary series. Uh, theologically, they lean very Reformed, but I can sift through that, but... William Hendrickson is a wonderful New Testament scholar. He's evangelical. He's a good guy. When he speaks, I listen. But let me show you what happens when you start figuring out stuff that the Bible doesn't explain to us. Here's what William Hendrickson says about why it's divided into three groups of 14. Listen to this. I won't go very long, but you'll like this. According to Matthew, therefore, Jesus is the climax of the three 14s. That these 14s express a symbolism can hardly be denied. After much reading on this subject, I suggest the following interpretation, acknowledging my indebtedness to many scholars who previously have attempted to solve the problem. Here he goes. Seven is the sum of three and four, each of which in its own way suggests fullness. Three, when used symbolically, spells that which has beginning, middle, and end, and is therefore complete. In Scripture, it is at times associated with God, viewed in the fullness of His glory, the source of blessing for men. Hence, we speak of the threefold Arianic benediction, the thrice holy of Isaiah's vision, the triad of blessing pronounced upon God's people at the close of Second Corinthians, and the favors emanating from God the triune, by which the seer of Patmos comforts the brother. Speaking of John, the number four used symbolically refers at times to the fullness of the earth and or the heavens with their four winds. And he gives references. Now, if even three or four taken singly can express fullness, then their sum seven, when used figuratively, conveys this meaning no less emphatically. And he goes on and on and on. And I say, time to stop reading. You can read about that. Your pastor isn't going to worry about that. What I say is, how come he didn't use two and five? How come he didn't use three, three, and one? Then he used three and four. The, all that, just to take a little commercial break and lighten the hour here, um, 
I don't know why it's divided into three fourteens. William Hendrickson could be exactly right. He's way more knowledgeable about the Bible than I am. Is it a picture of the fullness, the completeness? Uh, is it, you know, that, that, that Jesus' genealogy deserves to be the perfect genealogy, and so he divided it? I don't know, and, and I don't think it puts groceries on the table to know. So... There you go. That's the answer to that C question. I don't know if that was good use of my sermon time or not. Um, That's categories. C word number four. Contradiction. Contradiction. What about God's curse on Jeconiah and why is he in the genealogy of Matthew? What about God's curse on Jeconiah? Do you know about this? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 22, will you please? Turn to, hold Matthew chapter 1, but turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. And this is an interesting point that comes out of the genealogy. And again, all of these points, none are, are really worthy of bogging down, but they're interesting and uh, they shed light on the genealogical record. And some things that are nuanced and that you would want to know. We'll not take time to read the whole passage, but... Um, Notice in verse 24, he's going to pronounce a judgment on what in ESV is pronounced Kaniah. He dropped the word je, the je prefix off of Jeconiah in verse 24. God is going to condemn the son of Josiah named Jeconiah because he was a wicked man. He, he, Isaiah, or Jeremiah at least, Maybe God, under his inspiration, obviously under his inspired Holy Spirit, drops the Jeh because Jeh is the name of God, Jehovah. And, and Jeconiah was so wicked that when he pronounces this judgment, he drops the J-E off the front of his name, and it's just Kaniah. If you read through here, what you read then is that it culminates in verse 30, and thus says the Lord, talking about Jeconiah, Verse 30, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and so forth. And so you say to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can Jeconiah be in the genealogical record if he was under a condemnation from God and his offspring were never to sit on the throne again? What's going on? Let your eyes fall to verse 16, and notice how Matthew will change the word order when he pronounces Joseph. You'll notice in your King James Bible, it uses the word begot. It'll use the word begot, right? Somebody here has a King James Bible, and it says over and over, begot, 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 or begat. All right? In in our Bible, the ESV or the NIV, it will say, is the father of, or was born to, the father of, the father of, or was born to. Okay, here you go. Look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. It doesn't say that Jesus was born of Joseph. Do you see that? In fact, Matthew was very clear to make certain that the reader understood that Jesus was born of Mary. Now, one of the things that brings a little bit of confusion to this, are you still in Luke chapter 3? 
If you're still in Luke chapter 3, you want to look at Luke verse 27 in his, in his genealogical record. And notice what brings a little bit of confusion to this point is that two names match right about this point. Remember, we're going backwards, all right? And so notice, uh, let's begin with uh, the end of verse 28 in Luke chapter 3. Stay with me, class. The, end of, the beginning of verse 28, and then we're going to go backwards into verse 27. Malchi, the, Malchi, the son of Neri, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Teresa. It doesn't, use, it doesn't use Jeconiah. If you compare those two parts of the list, in Matthew you have Josiah, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, to Abiad. In Luke you have Melchi, to Neri, to Shealtiel, to Zerubbabel, to... I can't read my writing. The next guy on the list. You can look at it. Here's what the Bible students say. All that to say this. It is most likely that the Zerubbabel and the Sheltiel of Matthew and of Luke are two different sets of guys. It's not the same guys. And those were common enough names that it's very likely that guys around that generation would have been named that name. It's not a problem. And so you see that Jeconiah is not included in Mary's genealogy, and Mary was the birth mother of our Lord Jesus, and therefore Jesus was not disqualified to sit on the throne of David because of the condemnation of Jeconiah. You've, been, you've really been wanting to know about all that right there. Some people do. Let's go from categories, contradictions, what about God's curse on Jeconiah, to characters. Characters. So we're back in Matthew chapter 1, and now a little bit closer to some life application and some stuff that's really interesting that I pretty, probably should have got to a lot quicker. Number five, characters. C-word characters. Question, why does Matthew include women? Why does Matthew include women? Now, in our Western mind, that would not be unusual so much. We are now living in a time where when you get married, you don't always even take the man's name. It used to be where we understood it was a kind of a male running name thing, and it would have been unusual to hyphenate your name or take the female's name, but people will do that now, and it's not so unusual. In this era, it would have been highly unusual to include women in a genealogical record. They pretty much didn't care who the mother was. It mattered who the father was. And it was a man's world. And Matthew, when he records his genealogy, has four women, five including Mary that he's going to here, that Jesus, of whom Jesus was born. Let's look at these women and comment just briefly. The first thing you want to know is that three, or, three of the four women are known for their sexual immorality. Two of the four were known as prostitutes. All were Gentiles. All were from groups of people that the Jews were told never to marry. Two were Canaanites. One was a Moabite. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot from his ancestral relationship with his daughters when he was drunk in the cave. And one was a Hittite. These people don't qualify. Why are they there? They're Gentiles. Why are they in the list? Why would Matthew, writing to Jews, put women in the list to begin with? And why would he put immoral women in the list? Let's understand who they are a little bit more, and then I'll comment on why I think he did. The first one is Tamar. Look at verse 3. 
He's going along and he says, Zerah by Tamar. Why did he do that? Tamar's story is told in Genesis chapter 38. It is one of the grossest chapters in all of the Bible. It is one of the ugliest chapters in all the Bible. Tamar married uh, the son of Judah, who was the son of Jacob. And Judah, of the twelve tribes, Judah had four sons. Tamar married uh, one of them. And, and he died, and the other brothers were supposed to come in unto her to impregnate her according to their tradition so that she could have a son and carry on her husband's name through his brother. And you'll recall that they ref- either refused to do it or spilled it on the ground. That's that passage. And they died from it. And so she never got pregnant according to the tradition, so she's childless. And so at the time of shearing of sheep, when all the men were going down this certain road, she dresses up like a prostitute, goes and sits alongside the road, and seduces Judah, her husband's father, to come to her and lay down with her, which he did. She ends up keeping his his signet stuff, like a walking stick that probably had a signet on it and some stuff of his, personal items that were clearly identifiable as his. He goes on his way. She gets pregnant from her father-in-law. That's Tamar. Has a child. She, They go home after the time of shearing a sheep, find out that she's pregnant, and her father-in-law says, kill the woman. And she whips out the personal property and says, the owner of this stuff right here is the father of my child. Uh Uh-oh, he shut up in a hurry and he decided not to kill her. (laughs) Terrible story. It's unbelievable. That's Tamar. She was a Canaanite woman. All right? And his son wasn't even supposed to be married to her to begin with. You know the story, the best probably, besides Ruth, of in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, of Rahab the... That's how you know it, right? Even in little kids' Sunday school, we probably say that. Here, boys and girls, this is Rahab the harlot. Oh, mommy, what's a harlot? (laughs) She lived up on the wall at Jericho. But how did God use her? When the spies came, she hid them. And by faith, she believed that the God of Israel was the one true God. And spared their lives. Rahab the harlot is listed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, as a woman of faith. Rahab was, was a Hittite. Ruth was a Moabite. You can't really say anything bad about her. She was a Moabite. You know her story probably and how she ended up having love at first sight, getting married after her husband died. She becomes the grandmother of King David. And then the fourth woman, who's known for her immorality in the passage, let your eyes look at verse 6, is not mentioned by name. And verse 6 says, and, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He didn't even write her name down. I, I don't know why all this is. Let me just go right to the point here. I think you can argue that there's two significant reasons that Matthew included these women in the genealogical record. Number one is Jewish pride. Jewish pride. The Jews were a proud people, weren't they? And as Messiah was established to come from them, they became even more proud. And in fact, in the book of Acts, when the gospel began to be preached to the Gentiles, they were against it. It created great schism. They don't deserve the gospel. We deserve the gospel because we're Jews. 
They don't deserve the gospel. And Matthew whips out the genealogical record and say, <clears throat> who do you think you are? And the second reason that I think is more significant is the sovereign oversight of the plan of God to unfold at just the right time with just the right people. If you are Satan, what are you trying to do? If you're Satan, you're trying to corrupt the kingly line. If you're Satan, you're trying to disrupt the plan of God. And I think these women represent detours in the genealogical record. And Matthew is showing the Jewish people that God is in control. He's a God of grace. He's not going to mess up. He never says oops. And even though you had these digressions and these detours on the genealogical record, look how it worked out exactly, precisely the way God wanted it to. It's pretty neat, isn't it? Listen, we have people in our world today who think they're big stuff. They think they're in control. They think they know a lot. They think they're the prince of the power of the air. We have world leaders, multiple world leaders right now, that love to just see their picture all over. They love to show their power. They love to bump heads with each other. We live in interesting days. Listen, God has a plan. God has a sovereign plan. And people can't detour it. People can't digress on it. God is unfolding His plan just like here. It's going to happen just the way God said when He unfolds Scripture. Now, the final word, and with this we obviously will close. It makes sense to end with the final word, doesn't it? It's a word of contrast. A word of contrast. Why did God use Mary? When you get down to the end of the genealogical record, one of the reasons we see here that he used Mary is that, and not Joseph, so clearly he identifies that Joseph is not the one who inseminated Christ. But that is of the Holy Spirit, and that's the passage that we read in Luke chapter 1 when she was told that. So Matthew clearly shows that Joseph never came to Mary, and that Mary was a virgin to fulfill prophetic scripture. Prophecy was fulfilled. That's why God used Mary and showed that through the Holy Spirit so that Jesus was not an ordinary man. He was God in the flesh. Another reason why God used Mary is because she qualified do you remember those words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul said, In a wide house there's many kinds of vessels, vessels unto honor. Some are clean, some are dirty. You've got Tupperware in your cupboards. You've got china in the closet. There's lots of different kinds of vessels. But he uses that analogy then and says, You be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and fit for the master's use. I wanted to end, but will not do it, by going back to our scripture reading this morning, Luke chapter 1. And in that passage, I wanted you to see the purity of Mary as opposed to a Tamar. The purity of Mary. She was a young maiden, pure and clean. So she qualified to be a virgin to fulfill that scripture. Had she not maintained her virginity, she would not have qualified to be used of God. So number one, she qualified because of her purity. Number two, she qualified because of her humility. Her humility. God takes humble people and raises them up. And thirdly, she qualified because of her faith. Her faith. It's only by faith that we come to God. It's only through faith that we'll be used of God. And do you remember what she said after this incredible announcement was made? With God, nothing is impossible. And then Mary says, 
in Luke 1 that we read this morning, may it be as you have said. Just let it happen. Okay. Okay, I can handle it. We'll do it. Wow. Wow. Young people, young ladies, be like Mary. Pure, humble, faithful. Young men, protect the young ladies like Mary, like Joseph did. Well, there's our genealogical record for what it's worth. I hope you benefited from that. Let's bow in prayer and then let's see what they're saying to us back here. Well, Father, we, uh, we'd love to study your word. And as we've had a most interesting passage today, I trust that your Holy Spirit will take it and apply it and use it. Thank you, Father, for the beautiful way that it unfolds and how there's no mistakes in your plan. And even though you use some strange people to bring it about, you are sovereign over the affairs of men. Father, this Christmas season, may we worship and revel in your sovereign authority over our world. Your plan of salvation is an amazing sovereign plan. Help us to enter into it with joy. May we have a peace in our heart that our sin is forgiven by faith and the only one who qualified to go to the cross on our behalf, Jesus the Messiah. It's in his name that we've gathered, preached, prayed, sang, and that we go. Amen.